Welcome to Flipped, the Irish Animation Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 11 of Flipped. As always, we appreciate all the support you give to our faces and also on the web. This episode is the meeting of two Aidens, our very own Aiden McAteer and Aiden Hickey. Aidan Hickey is an animator, writer, director, teacher and painter. He began working in animation in the mid-70s for RTE and his work forms the bedrock of the Irish animation industry. He's made several award-winning shorts, written and produced many hours of children's television, written several feature-length projects and until recently served as Ireland's representative on the European animation body, Cartoon. We hope you enjoy. So you study painting, history and painting. Okay, I get that. So how did you, how do you go from painting to animation um, yeah, I did painting in the College of Art and um, back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously then it was never possible to make a living as a painter, <laughs> absolutely not. So I had to go and do teaching. And okay. I did teaching for six years, which I hated. Okay. Um, and paint, or teaching what? Painting art and, yeah. Uh, yeah, art. I also went to UCD while, while I was teaching. So I did English and history. And then so I became a teacher of English as well. Okay. Um, but I didn't like that any better. So um, I remember that my uh, a friend and I had a studio up in Queen Street where we were trying to paint. We had this notion that okay. we could teach and paint, which for me turned out to be a completely hopeless proposition oh, no. because teaching is a really draining job. And by the time you finished a week's yeah, teaching, you're completely smashed. Yeah. Um, so I knew I wasn't getting any painting done, even though we kept the place going. And um, I, for some reason, I can't remember exactly what the beginning of it was. I, I just began to think about film okay. for some reason, perhaps because we'd obviously been going to see, I think it was Lottie Reiniger, um, the okay. old German yeah, animator. Yeah, yeah. I'd yeah. seen some stuff of hers. And one of my uncles had a, an 8mm camera that he, okay. I knew he never used. So I went along and borrowed it from him. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was out of the Lottie Reiniger book that I made a rostrum, a wooden rostrum, in this mm. place up in Queen Street as near as I could to the one that she used and um, then I began to do silhouette animation there in my spare time and um, gradually became more and more interested in that and less and less interested in painting and even less interested in teaching (laughs) so um, eventually then I just got my courage together and made an application to Hornsey College of Art in London to do a course in in filmmaking and um, to do that, I had to, uh, to make the application, I had to submit a film that I'd made. So I made, a, comically enough, a live-action film um, called <laughs> The Twine Man's Mott, okay. which was based on the old street song, The, the Twine Man's Mott. Okay. Um, and uh, it was a half an hour long. I mean, it was just... It, we got up every uh, Sunday morning for about a year winter summer at the lot and we were mostly brutally hung over when we went out to make it um and uh, we used what's what would be interesting if i could find a way to see it because i haven't got an eight mil projector anymore um it was that we shot in all of the old parts of the city because we were trying to create a kind of victorian look so there's probably a whole load of dublin that's now gone long gone that's in that film um but anyway, it was good enough to get me into the, the course in Hornsey, so I spent a year there. Um, and you didn't think of submitting some of the sort of um, 
No, I, I didn't at the time. But, um, I presume that was cut, yeah, cut paper. Yeah, it was. And I stay doing cut paper all mm-hmm. the time. I mean, for... The, the course in Hornsey was really um, very, very generous. I mean, extraordinary facilities. And um, when I told them I was interested in animation, they rummaged around, found a place where they could get access to a rostrum camera, and I went there and worked on that. Wow. And um, so I made a few animated films there. Um, but the following year, I had to you know, go back to reality because I was married at the time we had a child. Mm-hmm. And... Um, we, I had to go back teaching in London again, which was a fairly grim experience. And one year of that was more than enough. So I came back to Dublin and then I spent about the middle of the 70s. That was in 1973-74. Um, for the middle of the 70s, I worked in, as an illustrator and uh, did a little bit of teaching, um, but mostly did book cover designs, that kind of thing. Um, uh, and then in... 78, um, I had been given an introduction to Eamon the Butler mm-hmm. and happily Eamon became a really good friend and mentor t- for me and he introduced me to Lima Muraku and RTE and um, I was working for Eamon then doing t- shooting titles for his because he and Gareth Van Gelderen used to work together but they'd gone their separate ways and I kind of stepped into the gap left by Gareth and was doing doing drawings for the inserts in the films because again in the pre-computer times yeah. um, any kind of graphics had to be put in the hard way I mean you had to shoot it and um, well obviously draw it hand draw it and then shoot it <laughs> yeah. so um, I did that for about a year and then I finally got a contract from Lima Muraku to make a series for RT and I remember I met him in February and explained what I was doing and he said that sounds great. Do you think you could have something ready for St. Patrick's Day? You know? right. And he had, you know, he completely, you know, just didn't understand what I was telling him about. Because just as you were saying about your film, three years it took to make it. He was hoping that you could have something ready in about three weeks. Oh, no. um, so, but I got on very well with him and he okay. was, um, he was uh, very much into our, he was head of Irish programs and children's programs, I think at the time. So I very tactfully made the first series called Muffin Spare, which no, not that was it. Um, what was it called? Um, it was mocking that it was um, on Sailing Dull Hearth. Okay. And it was just a series based on just ordinary um, tales that I invented, um, with an old lady sitting in her window looking out to kind of act as a a link thing for them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I went on the down for the next about 12 years working for RT making one series of films every year Um, and that came to an end just about the time when computers were starting to make their arrival and RT had decided enough was enough I think and um, (laughs) I was rather unceremoniously eased out so but at that stage cartoon was starting and um, through cartoon I got to know Jimmy Jimmy Murakami yeah. and we formed um, a company and then we worked together through the 90s um, working on uh, all kinds of different projects uh, I have to say none of our own projects ever really managed to get going in the way that we wanted them to um, because uh, we weren't really very good producers and we never <laughs> found the, the way to 
raise the money. Yeah, um, and sometimes you're that. dealing with a lot of money, you know, sure. even for a, a what, 25 episode series, yeah. it's um, big money. Absolutely. I think that was the thing that really finished my own attempts to make a series was the fact that I could make 13 five minute films in a mm -hmm. year, yeah. um, doing everything pretty well. Uh, mm -hmm. drawing, editing, filming, the lot. Mm -hmm. But when people started to look for half hours or 15 minutes, there was no way you could do that. Yeah, and so um, it was necessary to retreat. And I basically, at that stage, started to focus on drawing and story, or sorry, on, on writing oh, yeah, of course. and um, story development. And over the 90s, I, I, yeah, it just became more and more uh, directed in that way. And, um, so, just to sort of talk about the actual process then in RT. So you're in RT kind of on your own. Are you doing it here in sort of your own place, or you're in a studio in RT? No, no, in my own. So you were. Like we didn't live here. We only moved here in the middle of the eighties. But okay. um, yeah, from the start, um, first I did it in the back bedroom of the house we had over Mount Prospect, right. which is yeah, nearby, and then I rented space in a house down the road and I had a took the upstairs of the house and I had a room for drawing and editing and a room for the camera okay you know, and uh, and then moved here and I moved into this space mm -hmm. but the part of the reason we bought this house was because this space was here, here it was just a big derelict shed at the time right yeah. the house had been owned back in the uh, 50s by Hector Gray who's I don't know if you he's be, well before your time but he was a kind of legendary character in Dublin he was right. After the Second World War, he was one of the first people to realise that the Japanese, who were desperately trying to recreate their economy, were busily making very good, cheap toys. And he took to importing them and um, had a store in Liffey Street. Where he, okay. I think the store was there until a few years ago. But he, this was the warehouse that he used for as he brought these toys in and he put them into this space. Um, so, anyway, the space was there and I just... Did this with it, took three rooms in it, and the rest of it was just filled with the entire junk of the all the extended family. There's everything from boats to car parts to old fridges and whatever else down there. Um, so you are, so you, so you're doing everything. So you're so like well, I was looking at a few things, sort of doing some research. And the thing, the age that I am, the thing that really connected me is like sports. Like I completely remember that that supermarket potato. Yeah, it's funny how that one has remained. Because okay, was popular, that in Bosco? Yeah. Or no? Um, I, have, I have an odd connection with it with Bosco. I don't know if they inserted it in or. I think I they may have they done. Have yeah, I think so. Um, I find it really hard to remember that stuff. Um, I mean, I, I looked at printed out my CV. <laughs> this morning and I was amazed at some of the stuff that's on it stuff I'd completely forgotten about but um, I mean I did make a series of Bosco animations yes which they released well. on yeah. a videotape yeah. Um, yeah. at some stage so you take so let's say the McSpuds thing like that's a two minute episode say yeah so that was exceptionally you're short or yeah. say a five minute a standard five minute episode of, of one of those sort of early RTE ones so you are writing that yeah so you call the idea yeah, you used storyboarding it as well, or you didn't bother storyboarding it? Um, I did rough storyboards. Yes, because it's just yeah. for yourself. Yeah. So you don't need to. Yeah. Anything. And then you paint everything. That's, I mean, that's one of the, I think, trademarks of your work. Is it's all so well painted. It looks amazing. And so that, so you're, so you're just like basically doing everything. You're writing, 
sort of directing, painting, making everything. So you paint all the individual characters, you paint the backgrounds, and then it's under the rostrum. Yeah. Uh, so you shoot. Yeah, go on. Well, I mean, in the case of the Max yeah. Buds and another series I did at that, that time called The Short Deep, okay. both of those are did with Pat Inglesby. Okay. Uh, Pat was... we. Pat and I knew one another since we were kids. We both grew up in Malahide. Mm-hmm. And um, he had come to me. He was working in RT at that time. And uh, he suggested the idea for, certainly for Short Deep, because Short Deep was part of the village, the, the banks, the sandbanks in Malahide down by the right, river. Okay. And um, so we invented these characters that lived there and mm-hmm. had stories around that. But then we went on to do uh, the Max Buds. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Pat has a natural gift for insane ideas but not very good at sort of story okay. structure okay. so he would come up with the ideas and I would turn them into a story okay. and um, but all the rest I designed them at that time I remember I became part of the painter kind of painterly quality God bless the mark um, in some of that stuff was that I became pretty adept with an airbrush I could sort of yeah. line up a large number of things and oh, spray go right, okay. on them and um, do probably did my lungs irreparable damage but I would do a lot of um, colouring in a fairly short space of time oh, by doing that but the hard part was the cutouts because it was fairly good quality paper yes. so yeah. they wouldn't curl on yes, the camera yeah, yeah. Um, I remember at one period I wrote my sister into doing some of the cutting out and uh, oh, she did it patiently for about I think nine months and then said enough is enough um, so that was yeah, it was, it was very arduous, there's no yeah. question. It was hard work and you worked right through the year um, yeah. getting the stuff done. But I never missed a deadline and, um, you know, so it was, it was okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then it is, they kind of have, so you're just replacing the mouths, replacing the eyes, that kind of stuff in yeah. terms of the actual sort of technical process. And then the arms are kind of jointed really. You replace hands, I guess, or fingers. I think. Um, Sometimes. I would have thought the hand gestures would be minimal. I mean, yeah. it might have, particularly if you went into close-up for pointing at something yes. or something like that, yeah. would animate the hands. But, um, yeah, they were basically just little two-dimensional puppets mm-hmm. which with um, where you would draw, do the usual conventional mouth shapes for, yes. for each of the figures mm-hmm. and um, a very conventional walk cycle for each of the yeah. figures. Um, and no perspective stuff at all everything was flat and yeah. it was Byzantine kind of yeah. animation <laughs> where everything was flat in front of the camera yeah. Uh, yeah I mean the great attraction of that one was the the limited environment I mean the supermarket yes there, uh, yeah, there was just the and you could make great amount of reuse of the, mm-hmm. the aisles and the shelves and whatever else yes. uh, the um borrowed an idea from Bugs Bunny of only having the store manager appear in his feet I mean he was from the knees down <laughs> so that was uh, it wasn't Bugs Bunny which of the animation Tom and Jerry, Tom and Jerry yeah, uh, probably. yeah so uh, that was there were a lot of sort of economies yeah. made yeah. In, in that stuff yeah, but, it's, um, it's funny because even what I'm doing now it's like it's, it's kind of just that process we're doing you know what I mean it's yeah. kind of replacement mouths and replacement yeah. hands and replacement and there's eye blinks and it's you have walk cycles that you just kind of put in and everything as well yeah, so yeah. Funny, we're talking about how much things change, but actually, the actual technique or the method potentially yeah. actually stays yeah. relatively the same. Like, 
Yeah, I remember I used to meet Mark Baker, the English animator in yes, Neville Astley, yeah, yeah, and they did that, and you, yeah, know, yeah. And you know, and he used to say that to me, I'm just doing what you, what you used to do, um, and it is, yeah, I mean, I had, I did at one stage think about starting to go back and learn how to do all that stuff, yeah. but I just, uh, I'd had enough of that stage, I just wasn't <laughs> going to do it, I, and I would never be adept at computers anyway, I just, yeah. I'm kind of clumsy with them, and uh, I couldn't even do. I mean, I had to learn how to use it enough to do scripting because scripting okay, became totally dependent on uh, e- emailing and mm. very fast uh, production of the scripts. I mean, I would do is you know could get through a script very very rapidly. I mean, I think that was my main selling point. I was fast. I mightn't <laughs> have been the best, but I was, I was certainly the fastest. Um, so you couldn't do that unless you use Final Draft yes. or one of the yeah. programs that, yeah. that are good for scripting. So then, uh, just before we leave sort of the RTE years, so like so then Bosco, for example, those animated Bosco episodes, so that's more of a crew. That's not just you or you and Pat Ingleby. There's, you have, anim- have like, because I've looked at the credits, there's eight animators credited on some of those episodes. So yeah. Um, so are you and RTE, are they coming here? What's happening there? Yeah, I mean, this this room was, was you know, this, you can see there very, what used to be workbenches. Yeah, there yeah, were yeah. a lot of space and it was over there. Mm-hmm. So you could have about... Um, four or five people working here. So there were mostly youngsters who would you know, who were just starting out. Yeah. I always remember one guy, John Sullivan, who was yeah. from Cork. I mean he still works in animation, I believe. I haven't met John for years, but he was a seriously good at what he did and was a very very diligent worker. Um, and John worked with me for a couple of years on those kind of projects. Mm-hmm. Um, um yeah I saw Steve Woods maybe Steve, the, yeah, the... Steve did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Steve and I had um, been <laughs> I've been known one another for a long time, and um, yeah, so it was uh, the other part of it, the only part of it I couldn't do mm-hmm. was um, was the sound. This was fantastic, yes. Yeah, so. and so almost all of the sound was done um, with Pat Hayes, who is a really good sound guy who worked for years with Eamon the Butler. Mm-hmm. That's how I got to know him, and Pat was just extraordinary. I mean, he really, really had a talent for using machinery that was not the best but he would <laughs> right. keep it going somehow and um, he, it was a real pleasure to work with him um, happily he died a couple of years back when he was still a relatively young man um, but uh, yeah I mean I just would work with him um, and uh, bring a musician whatever yeah. uh, to the to the actors the one I worked most often with was Jonathan Ryan I mean, Jonathan had a, an incredible ability just to produce virtually any voice that you, oh, that right. you needed, yeah. um, and uh, so I mean, you just get the the tracks and and bring them back, and then I edit would edit them on a picture synchronizer, which is a wonderful little device um, okay. with four tracks, and then do the finished edit on a Steenbeck, which I had, which I still have. It's down the back. Um, and then we take that to RTE and we do the final mix working with Bobby Bell or Terry Goff. Um, can't remember the other guy, man, that we used to work there. Mm-hmm. Um, but we would sometimes work, we always kind of got downtime. Okay. And so we'd be sometimes working in the middle of the night, I mean, just putting these together. And I mean, sometimes you'd have as many as 12 or 15 tracks which had to be wow. brought down. And they only had a system that could do, I think, 
five they had these five rock and roll machines each one with its uh, <laughs> and everyone understood why they were called rock and roll but they were called that for okay. some of it was an american design and um they all just worked in sync okay. and they we'd run the film and, and do the mix do pre-mixes and then get it down to the final mix um uh, so it was that was a very complicated yeah. part of the whole process and again nothing like this yeah. wonderful device you have here. Oh yeah, the mic. Um, but and you're overseeing that you're directing voice actors and stuff, so you're kind of directing these as well. Yeah, exactly. Because I know that was one thing I did notice on those Bosco shorts that there's no directed by credit, which I was a slightly surprised by. But I assume that you did. I not do that. Oh. There's no directed by credit. No, really. So it's weird. It's, yeah, you you have kind of a like design and animation and stuff. Yeah, and, you, and then you have sort of assistant animators, something like mm. for yeah Stephen John. And then there's not, and then no, it just sort of cuts to a graphics production at the end, and Bosco didn't take this away. Yeah. No, well, I mean, yes, did, in yeah. as far as there was anyone directing it, I mean, <laughs> there was a, te- a way in which they kind of happened rather than, but, but certainly the the best fun of the whole thing, I don't know, with uh, Bosco, I think it mostly worked with Marion Richardson, okay. she did the voiceovers, mm-hmm. but certainly in the films that I worked with uh, Jonathan on, mm-hmm. um, and some of the other actors, God, there's, um, Jeez, so, my memory's going. <laughs> Some of the guys I worked with were really t- usually talented. Joe Taylor was one who used to work with. Joe was great, um, and we used to have the best of times. I mean, making these. Right. Sometimes we, there was a danger we'd never get the bloody recording made because we were just messing around and yeah. making stupid jokes and having fun doing the whole thing. Um, no, it's true. And again, that's another like link because that's the same thing happens with me when I'm doing voice yeah. directing for the thing yeah. we're working on. There's a worked a lot with Jack Costello Pilot and again he just did these amazing voices and everything and he's sort of getting to add in stuff and it's, yeah, 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 it's, yeah it's great fun so like I say it's it's kind of all the same <laughs> it's not that different really yeah, you know? yeah. Sort of the way we, the way we <laughs> made the films then most of them are just inaccessible now they were made on 16mm reversal stock shot on, on that camera in there um so there was no negative. They just you you got the film back from the lab, and you edited the only copy there was, and at the time we were just using tape splices. So, so there was always every every cut there was a little glitch in the thing, because the tape splices were never absolutely precise, um, and then the sound was put on what we call set mag, which was a parallel brown tape that ran with the thing in sync, and there was only one kind of machine that could actually run these I and mean, it was a UMIG I think uh, projector, double headed projector right. and the UMIG was in RTE and it was pointed into a kind of a like a bucket thing which fed into a TV camera and when it went for broadcast they ran it um, with the UMIG playing into this TV receiver and oh, okay. if if they got the sync right at the beginning that was fine but if they didn't get it right at the beginning <laughs> forget it you could be you know four or five frames out all the way through the show um and when it was finished they just took the two pieces out the two rolls the sound and the picture and gave it back to you and so the only way you could ever run them was on a steam deck and and there are no steam decks anywhere anymore so so none of those films can be viewed i'm sure you could find someone somewhere with a steam deck still and you could run them but it's um but rt weren't recording what was going through that camera no that was just a 
I think in the beginning, yeah, in the beginning there was before they were only beginning to use videotape, and it was it was kind of um, rare. I mean, it's really difficult to understand how the television stations actually worked without videotape for a long, not very long, but um, for even into the seventies, they still didn't have it. It was it was kind of a special piece of equipment which they were kind of careful about using. Um, So it it is really difficult to to get your head around that still. I mean, I'm kind of amazed, and I tell myself about it. It's just uh, it's just strange. It is, but it's, it's true. You, you kind of hear, um, like, when you hear people like washing the animation off cells to reuse the cells and everything. You're kind of like, what? We, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Cell washing? Why are you ruining us? It's a, sort of a similar thing. It's like all this stuff has happened, and there's no kind of record of it. Or, 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 you know, or, I don't know. <laughs> I think that is a shame that there isn't. Um, well, I guess I would do that, but um, it's the inevitable thing. Every craft worker that ever lived. You know, resents it when his craft fades away, um, and that's true. I mean, the cell painting and paint, all the whole process of paint and trace and everything else that went through that. And there were so many people who were really, really good at yeah. those jobs, yeah. and some of them made the transition into the modern era. You mm. just went onward, but many of them couldn't. Yeah. And the painters, in particular, were sort of dumped um, mm. fairly unceremoniously, yeah. and that business of painting on the back of the cells mm. was really very very nice craft and which people had acquired really good skills in and um, it was a shame to see them all just uh, be yeah. done away with by literally by the computer because the computer <laughs> just did the colouring yeah. not always so well I remember in the beginning when they were doing the first there'd be terrible stories the guys would set the whole thing up to colour a scene overnight but there'd be one line somewhere that wasn't quite finished and the colour would leak and so the whole thing would be destroyed yeah by now, obviously, all that's it's <laughs> more or less sorted. <laughs> Can it still happen? I think it still does, yeah. Really? I think yeah. so. But, I mean, yeah, it depends on what way you're thinking about it, I suppose. It's yeah. Traditional. I guess you still get to draw the lines and mm. where the lines are, I think. Yeah. You know? but, um, and I, I think it's maybe as things do keep changing faster and faster and evidence of what we did becomes harder to yeah. keep handle on. Um, you th- find yourself wanting to do stuff from the past. I mean, much of my painting that I'm doing now is I've constantly been accused of looking like a Victorian painter or something. But I just love the, the skill that they had and, and the, the way they had of, of seeing the world. And um, I really feel almost resentful that all that should be thrown away and, yeah. and lost. So yeah, it's... Yeah. Uh, and I guess it's the same in animation. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, okay. So we'll just very briefly talk about Inside Jobs because I love that. So that was while you were at RT as well? Yeah, I mean, I was working for the kids' department on an annual contract, and at that stage they kept changing the heads of the department. I worked with some really good people, but one of them was Michael Monaghan, um, who was briefly the head of uh, children's. And Michael, I think he took a, a concerned look at me and what I was doing and realised probably that what... I couldn't realise that I was working my way into a real trap. I was just doing one thing, totally dependent on RTE's okay. support. And he could foresee that this wasn't going to go on forever. Yeah. So he very wisely suggested that I try and see something of the bigger world because there was nobody else doing animation here at the time. Actually, that's so. the thing, yeah. Before we can go, so when you started, like the animation industry, there kind of just wasn't one, or was it not? No, I mean, there wasn't one. Uh, 
There was uh, Jimmy Quinn, who made uh, David Quinn's father. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, Jimmy was making, or about the same time he started doing small animation, model animation model, pieces yeah. for RTE. So Jimmy and I would occasionally meet, mm-hmm. um, but um, that was it. I mean, there was just no, there was nobody else there. Eamon the Butler had always wanted to do animation. He had made some small pieces yeah. early on, but he he was obviously it was that would have been a very much of an aside for him. Yes, of course, yeah. So he was kind of uh, pleased to get me around, and he could tell me what he would have done <laughs> if he was doing that animation. So we used to have some good conversations about that, but. Um, no, there was nobody else doing anything. Okay, so, um, so sorry. Yes, you were saying. Uh, well, Michael suggested that I go to Annecy, and I hadn't even heard about Annecy oh, at that wow. stage. Okay. Um, so, the following year, I went to that was I think it was in eighty three. I went to Annecy, and I was completely knocked out by yeah. the spectacle of it. And I remember leaving, going to the airport, and thinking, "I'll never come back to this place unless I've got a film okay. to take back here." Um, and so I just doggedly set about doing a film to go to Annecy with yeah. and uh, but the, then Annecy was run every second year so I oh, okay. had two years to do it and, uh, so it, I mean why I made the inside job is just um, I think it probably started with the notion that I could, would work with Jonathan Ryan and Jonathan could do lots of voices so right. that would be an obvious thing that it's something that would involve a lot of a lot of speech yeah. because that also would cut down on the amount of animation <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. and I seem to remember boasting to somebody that I was going to make an animated film with one drawing. And um, I didn't quite deliver on that because it does change when the explosion comes. There's obviously a second drawing. But there is just one drawing and for the whole length of it. Um, amazing. And um, then, yeah, also it was only years later I realised that I'd actually, as a kid, I'd had a really bad experience at a dentist. I, mean, I, I figured there must have been I nearly, something. <laughs> and that never, at the time, it never really? crossed my mind. But I, mean, I nearly died, I mean, as a result of the, oh, wow. a dental problem oh, that uh, arose when I was about 13. Wow. And so maybe somewhere, <laughs> it was, this was lurking crisis. in the back of my mind. And um, so I was kind of getting it up for dentists and... Um, but the piece at the end where the, I don't know if you've seen the BBC, the only one that's on the, that runs around on the internet is the one that the BBC broadcast. Yeah, no, I saw, I saw one at a, a Steve Woods did a kind of an Irish animation festival. Oh, then that would have been the full version. Yes. Yeah. But they found the end of it completely disgusting where the finger's bitten off. Yes. And, uh, and it's disgustingly bad animation, I have to say. <laughs> but it's, um, there was a girl working at me at the time, called, a girl called Jean, um, and she was my camera operator. Right. And she had a very zany disposition. And I sh- while we were doing an RTE series, I was working at the same time on this other thing. And she came in one day and I explained to her what I was doing. And she said, that dentist is a real bastard. You should fix him up at the end. Yeah. you know. And I had no intention of doing anything beyond oh, right. the end. So I, sh- I thought she was right. She really should have something nasty happen to him. So I added on that end piece. Um, but it was um, also, I guess, too, about kind of respect and affection and feel for the old movies and for the people who made yeah, them um, it was kind of nice to wander I mean, through all that territory yes and it must be like uh, so I don't I guess of course you studied English and everything as well like you were beginning to like you always felt that you could write or something because for that piece is like that's it's writing almost more than animation like it's fantastic it's that's what I, mean, I guess I was writing for Jonathan Ryan I mean that yeah. was that was um, and uh, 
But you must have, like, I think for me, like, if I had made that, I would feel, okay, now I can, I can sort of, I can, I can actually write, you know what I mean? As opposed to, sort of, I don't know, people take you more seriously when you follow that rather than the guy who does the cartoon bits or anything. Um, again, that was, you know, it's probably at a subliminal level, I did begin to realise that, that then eventually helped me to make the transition into script writing he, all the time. That's what I said, most of it, yeah, yeah um, must have helped. But at that time, I was so busy getting back to just making more stuff for RTE that mm-hmm. it didn't cross my mind. Um, and did you take it to Annecy then? Oh, I did. I took it to Annecy yeah. and um, it was screened uh, in one of the sessions mm-hmm. and to considerable acclaim. I mean, it was obviously yeah, the audience liked it. But um, it never occurred to me. I was delighted with myself that I'd had a film screened mm-hmm. in Annecy and I'd been meeting people because obviously it was then even more than I think later it was a very good place for meeting people mm. and um, making contacts for work and so on yes so I was busily doing that for most of the days and then the last day came I decided I'd seen all these nice little bars around the place and I decided I was going to go out and sample the French wine and um, so I spent from lunchtime that day I went on a sort of a personal pub crawl around <laughs> Annecy and by late in the afternoon, I met one of the English guys and he said that there was somebody from the organisation was looking for me. Right. And I seem to remember wandering back towards the Bon Lou. Mm-hmm. I met one of the young women who organised the thing and she was give, really, really giving out to me in French because I should have made myself available. I was obliged to be there as a... Okay. But anyway, they, when the time for the awards came, I'd won the, the, the young people, the jury award. They, 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 it was the... Um, I think it was the young people of Annecy had a special section right. that they voted on it and yeah. I, I got the prize. Yeah, so it was that was a really nice um, yeah. accolade to get and uh, made me feel fond, even more fond of Annecy <laughs> forevermore. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a fun, it's a, yeah, it's an amazing place. Um, so then, yeah, okay. So then, after you are unceremoniously evicted from here, I know it's not fair to say that. I, they did give me some warning and. Um, yeah, we had. I mean, I've been doing it for twelve years at that stage, so it was it was a reasonable thing for them to so do. So now you're out, and the quote unquote industry now there's kind of is more than just you and Jimmy Quinn. Yeah, well, by that stage, I mean the Americans had arrived. I mean, so Don so Bluth was, was here. Yeah, it. and uh, Fred Wolf and and Jimmy's were. I mean, that was Jimmy had worked with Fred when they were setting up the studio, but he sort of left and mm-hmm. um, and. We both then began to gravitate towards the new organisation cartoon that was being okay. set up yeah. because that was an obvious way to make contacts and get work outside. Um, and eventually cartoon, well, within a very short space, I can't remember now whether it was two or three years, they had devised this idea of setting up studio groupings. I mean, they were their whole beginning of cartoon was yeah, about trying to about cr- trying to create links because they so each country... European kind of... Yeah. I mean, when they started, there was a kind of animation industries in some of the countries, but none of the European animation travelled. I mean, there would have been a tiny percentage of what was made in England or France or Germany would go anywhere outside of there. Um, So their brief was to try and create links, grow the industry and create a a Mm pan-European industry. Um, And they tried all kinds of things to, to do that. One of the ones that they did was the studio grouping, where they had very generous grants. It has to be said. I mean, looking back on it now, it was uh, really it was a golden age, mm-hmm. um, and uh, 
they could there was no company in Ireland at the time, no indigenous company that could could join in on this. Right. So they recommended that Jimmy and I form a company together and get going on you know doing some production, and then we could link into this European group. And so we did that, and um, we joined in with uh, a Danish group, uh, A Film, I mean, yes. a really good yes. studio, yeah, yeah. and Francis Nielsen in um, in Paris. Okay. Um, and I mean, the way in which that happened, Jimmy had, you know, his reputation was, was always very big. And we'd gone to Cannes um, with some projects that we had. Okay. And, so this uh, sort of started in the 90s? This would have been about 93, I think, okay. 90, maybe 94. And uh, yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy uh, talked, we met on the corridor, we met uh, Karsten Killerick and Anders Mastrup from Mayfilm. And we said, well, Jimmy asked them if they'd be interested in forming a grouping. And they said, mm, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> and we wandered off. And the next day, he met Francis Nielsen on the escalator and called to France. Francis was going down and we were going <laughs> up. Called out to Francis, we'll be interested in forming a grouping with a film. And Francis said, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. And so by the evening of that day, we had formed the grouping. And wow. it was that casual. I mean, wow. we had to go through a ton of paperwork and so on. But at the time, we were then getting something, I can't remember the figures, but it would have been maybe 150,000 a year to organise the groups and to prepare, develop projects and um, and travel and meet people. And it was really... Um, the comical thing was that... They're not comical, but the sad fact was that very few of the groupings... In fact, none of the groupings survived. Some of them were very successful for a time. Okay. They some of the ones that had English and German companies particularly mm-hmm. they had very good funding very good access to broadcasters and very good crews mm. so they did very well but all of them came apart okay. but in the end it was a huge success for Cartoon because everybody in the industry knew everybody That's else awesome, within the yeah. space of about four or five years right, okay. and the um, <clears throat> production handbooks have been standardised I don't know if you've ever seen the uh, Bible the studio Bible that Robin Lyons wrote and I mean that was one of the big problems I had in the beginning that everybody had different terminology people had different scale of peg bars they everything was different they different field sizes they used and all of that was standardized how you do storyboards how you do layouts all of those things had to be yeah exactly so that was one of the results of that that it, it created a kind of a standardized uh, um, process and a great network system that you know has gone on to this day. I mean, obviously, a younger generation of people have taken it over now, yeah. but it has. Um, it really did start to create a European industry. And if you look at the figures that Cartoon have of what the uh, size of the industry was in terms of just production then and now, yeah. it's it's a phenomenal difference. I mean, if we could. <laughs> done that in steel and shipbuilding or something Europe would not be in the economic <laughs> trouble it is today and that's true that's so. amazing so so you mentioned Jimmy Murakami so when did you guys first meet them um, I think we met in um, in Brussels or in Annecy probably in Annecy okay. yeah that was more likely in Annecy uh, during the 80s or yeah it would have been in, during the 80s I remember John Coates from TVC and Jimmy were good friends okay. and um, I got to know them both there. But um, I think the time I really got to know Jimmy, and which led into this uh, arrangement of the grouping, 
was one of the earlier projects that uh, Cartoon had funded. It was um, a project out of Holland <coughs> from Garrett van Dyck, who was a very famous Dutch animator and writer and fireworks designer. I mean, he was a multi-talented man. <laughs> um, but Garrett wanted to make a version of The Seven Deadly Sins. And at the time, that sounded like an absolutely perfect yeah. project for Europe because it would obviously bring uh, old yeah. people together. So Garrett picked the team himself and um, he said to me, uh, he gave me anger. And he said he had never known, knew a less angry man. <laughs> he didn't know why he had done that. But we we, used to have, we had a really great time um, planning that film, which never got made. I was going to say, you haven't seen it. Did it ever happen? No, it never happened. There's a poster over there on the wall, that very stained looking yellow poster right. oh, yeah. was, was for it. Um, but um, it just didn't happen. We used up all the money planning it and never raised the money. We, we couldn't agree on the structure for it. It was just too complicated. Um, and uh, But like I say, again, the process of not doing it actually made all kinds of contacts with... Yep. I mean, I worked, Guido Manuli was the Italian. I mean, I know Guido to this day. It was just... Uh, it's really nice to, you know, see how all of these people came together and yeah. had a great amount of talent, but just in many ways unfortunately incompatible talent mm-hmm. um, so Jimmy became involved in that too because I, I wasn't um, really up to the scale of production that was going to be involved in that so I got Jimmy involved and, and um, that was really the start of how we worked together Good. Yeah. so then you sort of continued sort of working with him then sort of throughout the 90s or so yeah. that, that partnership sort of you did so you formed a company yeah so yeah, it was, was called Allegro Animation, okay. and we, we um, that became part of ARA, which was the Allegro Rooster A film, which okay. is the, oh, yeah, the grouping. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we we worked mostly with the groups, doing production work with them, and <clears throat> part of the brief, <coughs> excuse me, um, with the uh, cartoon was we would develop new projects. So we had a slate of projects. I mean, we would have had seven or eight each um, going at the same time and some of which came we did uh, do one with them which was Inspector Mouse okay. based on a Ralph Steadman story okay. yeah, yeah. but that was a very sad experience in many ways because I did all the writing on it but um, which kept me busy as a writer mm-hmm. but as a studio we didn't we ended up having to concede almost all control of it to the French and it was done in Francis Nielsen's Rooster Studio. Um, and then the next best one that we did was one called Penny Dreadful, okay. which, you know, has now that the idea for that has been taken up and is mm-hmm. actually almost exactly the same idea as right. now being used for the TV, TV show, show, live action show. Yeah. Um, but we did some, we did a lot of work on that and had a huge amount of interest in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did a company called Duran in France who was pushing up 50% of the the money for it and I used to the, the poster over there they sent me they sent me that as a Christmas card one year um, and they they got into negotiation with a Canadian company I think it was called Catalyst or Chrysalis or some such name and they then proceeded to argue for about a year and a half and by the time they'd argued they lost all interest in the project they just became a bitter dispute between who would do what and how much would go to Canada 
and we were just left sort of piggy in the middle I mean and got absolutely nothing it just died completely and years later people used to come and ask us whatever happened mm -hmm. to Penny Dreadful because it really was we got a really good French designer um, Jean-Claude Denis who's a great comic book artist right. and I'd met him once and uh, persuaded him to come and well, we used to send him the material and he yes. would do the drawing yeah. and then we turned that into a pilot film and that was the, the selling point okay. which worked, worked very well yeah. I mean but um, not well enough to it's get made sadly <laughs> it's true but again like from the little that I'm exposed to I think that, you know that happens all the, that's still going as well oh, yeah. <laughs> productions yeah, yeah. it's just know, the way it is we sort of we hear about all these things either even within the street, I mean, but with just other people or jobs that might be happening in other places, mm. and it's like, yeah, one in ten of them actually happen, or even even less, you know. Yeah. So it all kind of sort of tends to fall apart, especially some someone like like Tom Ward and like Cracking Saloon. Like I still, I still don't know how they managed to make those features with mm. twenty different countries involved, yeah, yeah. and it's amazing. So. It is. I mean, they. They were, I mean, I think it's one of the big distinguishing marks between the generations yeah. here that our generation were just utterly inept and almost <laughs> indifferent to the business of production. I mean, whereas they've got Paul Young out there day yeah. and night working, Paul is yeah. just a really good producer who works very, very hard at it. He doesn't do anything else. We just thought production was something that happened by magic. I mean, it's just, if you did the drawing and did the writing, make a pilot and then to sit back and wait, yeah. and of course, it didn't happen and it never happens. Um, you really need someone who understands the business and um, um, <laughs> it was fun doing it but <laughs> it wasn't very economically successful yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. so then so in terms of the 90s then you are you're working with Jimmy and so basically you moved into writing mostly now yeah yeah I would do some um, some design work and yeah. storyboarding of, yeah usually keep some storyboarding going I mean very often it was just to be a lot of downtime mm. between when we were waiting for stuff so yeah, you do whatever came along mm -hmm. occasionally make small um, information films or yeah. you know whatever uh, and um, I mean one of the things I came across this morning when I looked at my CV mm. was I made a series for um, and wrote a feature actually a small feature for a Korean company right. that I never met I mean I never met a single person <laughs> from them. I can't even remember who introduced me to them. Right. Um, but it was called Dibbo. Um, it was a little bird, um, a kind of penguin character. Right. And um, they made the series. They then made the, the small feature. Mm -hmm. And then the feature was shown in um, at the Cartoons on the Bay. Mm -hmm. And they won some awards there for that. And they then sent me a note saying, it's been huge success. We're very pleased. We now have an American writer and we won't need you anymore. Oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah. So it was just, but it was, we, you know, did stuff like that to fill in right, and, yeah. and keep going at that yeah, time, yeah. yeah. So can we talk a little bit about writing then? So uh, one of the other things I've, I noticed when I was going through your CV was that there's an awful lot of like writing Bibles for people, which is, I think is a skill that not many people have. And I don't know if there's anything in particular that you have kind of insight or you kind of would say about that particular sort of type of writing. So is that... That's not done at the start, it's done once there's been a few scripts generated or it's all done at the start when you're doing kind of pre-production or how does that work exactly? Um, ideally, I mean, there's, there really is two, there's always been two, from my point of view, there's mm -hmm. two 
two Bibles. There's the writer's Bible and there's the, the Bible for production and publicity purposes. Right. Um, and the writer's Bible really starts to form as soon as the concept is, okay. is forming. Uh, I mean, I know that's not the case with some people who come along and a lot of people would come to me in those days with ideas for films and they'd no idea how to do it and they'd, uh, they'd be kind of taken aback at the idea that you had to write a Bible if you're going to. So they, they would then feed their ideas into this um, basically a formula I mean defining the characters defining the concept mm -hmm. finding the world of the stories mm -hmm. I mean, it's a long time since I've done any of them mm -hmm. but um, there were a couple of Bibles that I got copies of and I can't even remember the names of them now but there were some particularly well written ones that I I must admit that I used as a model myself oh, many okay. times and there were some really interesting American ones um, the the one they made about the junior Mickey Mouse characters who were let loose in Warner Brothers. Uh, what oh, were yeah, those the, called? Uh, Animaniacs. Yeah, Animaniacs, yeah. yeah. The, the Bible for that was really well written, and but very funny as well. They managed yeah. to be both funny and um, very informative. Because I'd imagine they'd be kind of dry, those stuff. Mostly they are, yeah. yeah. Um, but then on the other hand, if you're writing the production Bible that you're going to take to MIP or yes, to Annecy, then you rewrite it completely. Yeah. I remember once I took... Uh, a woman I later became kind of friendly with, uh, Ula Zeman, I think was her name, and she damned the Bible I wrote, I mean, I presented it, for, because it took her, it took like four hours to read it or something, and I gave him the full oh, Bible, you know, yes. with every minor character described, and she was really snotty about it at the time, and it was after that, I never did that again, <laughs> I mean, I wrote it completely reduced and concise and as far as possible witty version of the thing yes. to try and craft it in a way that would be entertaining to read yeah. whereas if you're writing for the production crew you just write for the, the layout artist or for the storyboard artist and, and they don't need jokes they're going to yes. make the jokes themselves yes. I mean, and, and uh, so it's uh, yeah I mean that's the essential difference between mm -hmm. those two that mm -hmm. you one has to be entertaining and the other has to be informative. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the, the, the important one, the production Bible, yes. that's going to be read by the crew is mm -hmm. it really needs to be as fully developed and as, as complete in its description of everything as possible, but at the same time leaving enough flexibility for the people to, for the individual script writers, for, for example, to take on and, and elaborate and expand yes. on it yes, and, exactly. and create little side avenues and sometimes characters can develop in that process which maybe in the beginning in the bible there might be minor characters but actually they can take on much greater importance as, as the thing goes yes yeah because yeah. Um, yeah, you sort of don't know isn't it there, there are lots of examples of ones that the yeah, yeah. characters just kind of became really popular or something yeah it obviously then increases because that's, you can't tell when you're doing the Bible, you can't tell the kind of magic of that mm. relationship yes. that will develop, say, between the main character yes. and a sidekick. And, yeah, because uh, I guess it's played out in, in scripts and story and more than episodes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in live action, I mean, recently, I mean, I'm a great admirer of the series Breaking Bad, yeah. which I think the best yeah. TV ever written. Yeah. Um, but an interview with um, the guy who plays Jesse Pinkman. Mm -hmm. He was saying that in his, uh, he was only contracted for the first, I think, it was six or eight episodes, oh, no. 
because they didn't expect him to survive. Yeah. But by the time they got there, they realized that he was central to the whole story. Yeah. He wasn't in many ways the story. Yeah, yeah, and, um, So he survived absolutely. and was written into it. Now that indicates a perfect degree of flexibility on the part of the people mm. planning. I know that um, live-action filmmakers don't do Bibles in the way that animators yeah. do, so they do have more liberty. But, uh, yeah, you can think, I'm sure you could, there are examples in animation of... Yeah of characters who've sometimes even became series in their own right and yeah. then some characters would That's go true. on. But yeah. it, it, like you can see it, like things like The Simpsons where it's all about Bart kind of at the start, isn't it? Mm. And then by the end it's kind of about Homer. More mm. so, isn't it? Yeah. In a lot of ways. Or he gets a much bigger role <coughs> as a sort of character. But um, I was going to ask you then about sort of then the process of writing. So throughout the sort of 90s you were writing for a film and like like various different sort of around Europe and even yeah. Korea and things you were saying about that and uh, I do wonder there's a sort of American model of this thing where the writer's room business where there's six or seven writers in, in a room and you all kind of generate ideas and test mm. off on a script and I guess that's missing if you are did you have much experience with that kind of thing or did you not or did you sort of wish that you had more or was it less or how was that for, for you? I wish that I had more yes <laughs> but for sure but I did manage to that became so obviously a good way to mm. work that I tried in as far as possible to to work that way okay. um, I remember at one stage I worked for FOSS just when they used to write and produce uh, training programs and mm -hmm. I think they did a really good job on that mm -hmm. um, I mean FOSS generally had a pretty bad uh, outcome, but yeah. but the FOSS, the screen training Ireland, a yes. part of FOSS, struck me as being extremely effective and had a yeah. great, yeah. very positive effect. Yeah, but I mean, every writing course that they ever put on, I went to it, <laughs> even though I was far older sometimes than the lecturers, <laughs> for mine, the students. Um, I just thoroughly enjoyed that process and usually listening to Americans talk. But one of the things they did was they um, they asked me to design a course for animation writing. And um, they said, who would you like to, to give the lectures? I mean, I was just to kind of create the brief and then oh, get somebody yeah, good. Yeah. And I said, oh, well, it'd be great if you could get one of the guys from The Simpsons. I mean, saying it just as a joke. Yeah. Yeah. And they said, well, yeah, we'll think about that. We're going to California next month and we'll, we'll look around. And lo and behold, about nine months later, they pitched up with Al Jean. Yeah, um, wow. And he spent five days in a room in the Westbury Hotel with about, uh, I think there were 12 students and me lurking down the back every minute of every day, listening to him. Um, and he was extraordinary. And he described in great detail that process of how they worked the room. I mean, mm -hmm. and how somebody's in charge of the room. And, and um, it was just a real revelation and um, also extraordinarily entertaining because he was just very funny about it. So... After that, I always tried to work in that way. The nearest I ever got to doing it fully yeah. was in... Um, I did a series with uh, Gert Hahn in, in, in Hahn Film in Berlin. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. So um, that was... The, the method that Gert set up was... Originally was to be myself and the writer, the, the originator of the, the project, mm. uh, Ted Seeger, and uh, Bill Spears, a Canadian who was the director okay. um, but then we'd started into that process of working on the scripts and I think 
we were clearly having a hell of a good time talking about this and that. I think Gert got a bit nervous about it, so he insisted on bringing in another writer, a friend of his from the UK, a guy called Richard Everett. Right, okay. Uh, but Richard joined into the merriment and we proceeded. Um, in fact, we then lost uh, Ted because Ted didn't didn't like the way we were developing the story ideas. And oh, right, okay. So he, he, he left and... But... Um, I was I would go to Berlin for t- t- sometimes a week, sometimes two weeks, okay. and then we would just sit there talking mm-hmm. through the storylines. I mean, and I remember that the, we do it in mostly in um, in uh, Bill Spears' office, okay. and the glass door, and Bill liked to sit on the floor, and sometimes. Okay. Um, Richard would be sitting on the desk and I'd be lounging on the chair or whatever. Yeah. And you see Gertan coming by looking in and staring at <laughs> thinking more or less, I'm paying these guys. Yeah, and just falling around the place laughing and messing around all the time. Yeah. But um, we ended up producing 25 half-hour scripts in, through that process. Um, and the series turned out all kinds of problems with it because they were doing it in the very called? early... It was Altair. Okay. Yeah, they... But it was very successful on German television. It got really good ratings when it eventually was. It was years later. Oh, yeah. I just got a call one day from one of the guys from the production company. Gert was making it for a company called Berlin Animated Film, mm-hmm. which had a very odd kind of structure. Um, but one of the guys, uh, Baumgarten, uh, phoned me years later to sort of thank me and say that the film it's on, it's on and it's doing really well. Mm-hmm. And he asked me to, would I come and write the next? Because they were going to go... This was quite. This was only a few years back. It was just, I think, about two thousand and six, right. and they were going to go and make a new app series, but then everything fell apart, and, yeah. and uh, that company was particularly big into well, they diversified in their property and oh, right, whatever okay. else. Uh, I remember their office. They had the first office I ever saw. There was done with brushed steel walls. I mean, wow. they'd spent a fortune on their own headquarters. So, um, that's crazy. Um, so then, did you one of the so sort of sort of perusing through things? Did you uh, so you did write something for House and Bachelor? Did you uh, like the was it No European yeah. something like that? Were you actually you've involved? done your research? Because <laughs> um, that did you go go over there? Did you meet any of those guys? Because that's Bob Godfrey was kind of Bob Godfrey. Yeah, I mean, worked with Bob and yeah, with John Hallis on yeah. that. Um, and um, oh yeah, I mean that was, you know, I mean Bob Bob Godfrey was a, truly a legend in his own time. Yeah, I mean, an extraordinary man, and one of the most kindly and funny individuals I've ever had the good fortune to meet. Um, but we did the sound for that in London. Um, well, on one occasion, Bob deciding that the actor that they'd employed to do it didn't really know how to do an Irish accent, and he would do it. So he read the whole script, and he was even worse, uh, as you can imagine. Um, but, um, yeah, the notion of that was... It was one of those films that grew in part out of the European okay. thing. And um, John Hallis wanted to... And in many ways, it was his kind of swan song. He died before it was, was finished. Uh, and it, in fact, never was finished. I mean, it was. The, I had finished my film, and um, Bob had finished his. And there was an Austrian guy, I think, working. And he had done. Some, I can't remember who, but only a few of them were finished. They were never amalgamated into, and presented in the way that. I think it was at the time when the Euro was coming on. That was that was what it was really for. 
So each of us were meant to explain our own country. And so I decided to present a completely farcical notion about our intel. All the, all the big Irish lies told as if they were gospel truth. Right. Um, and uh, it was a country with a terrific pagan tradition and a wonderful climate. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, but, uh, I mean, from that day to this, I mean, until you mentioned it now, I haven't, mm-hmm. you know, haven't thought about that for yeah, years. Yeah, I couldn't was, find it. There's like a tiny clip of the yeah. The, there was a drawing stuck to the wall inside for years and it fell down and got lost. I don't know what happened. <laughs> um, yeah. I, mean, I don't even know where there's any footage of, of anything of that. Left. It must be around somewhere. No, I, I think it might be some sort of Palace of Imagination or like DVDs or collection really? of people collecting works or something. But it might be on. Okay. Yeah. No, it was it was really sad that uh, John never got that finished. Yeah, and he got. You know, I remember meeting him the last time I met him. Um, we uh, we were in London, and we just went and had a a meal together, and, and just sat and talked about. It. But he was obviously getting really ill at that stage. Um, and later, I went to go and see him again. Um, he lived in Hampstead. Mm-hmm. I'd never been to his house, but he invited me to come out. And Yannick Astrup is a great Danish animator. I was in London at the time. And Yannick wanted to meet him because he'd met him years before. He met him. And we went out to Hampstead and I couldn't find the house. Oh, and, wow. just, and I think Yannick was really furious at me because oh. I t- dragged him out there all the way to Hampstead. And we wandered up, down and sideways and could not find her. So we ended up coming back to down into London and going our separate ways. <laughs> so I never saw John again, but he was he was an extraordinary man as well. Yeah. So... Uh, were you so you're working away on other things with Jimmy and Bluth and Fred Wolf are doing their things and then Bluth leaves and then uh, so do you start getting more work do you get involved with Brown Bag and things like that as well is that what I'm yeah I did work um, I did work with Brown Bag is there anything else in that interim that I'm missing or well (laughs) you're you're telling me you're (laughs) you're reminding me of lots of things no I did work with Brown Bag one of the things that a curious thing if I'd been better attuned to business I would have noticed right. was that I started working with a man called um, Pixel Magic was the company okay. Nolan um, is the man's name okay. and he um, he had some really really good ideas for doing computer games at a time when nobody else was doing that mm-hmm. certainly not here and mm-hmm. we, he had a link with the company in Germany called in Munich called Ravensburger okay. we're part of the, one of the big German publishing companies and um, so we started to make uh, computer animation games oh, okay. on disc uh, there were oh yeah much, CD-ROMs uh, CD-ROMs yeah um, and we were doing this here and then I was it was just too busy and I began to cut, brown bag was starting up yes. so I started to farm out some of the work oh, to brown bag oh, and then we did that for I think we did about four of them and then I went on writing these ideas and developing them with his, with, with um, Connor, Connor O'Nolan, the Connor's crew. Uh, he had some really good people doing the computer side of it. Mm. Um, so I was working that. And then I, the next production that came along, Brown Bag was doing the animation and I was completely <laughs> sidelined at that point. And that was the writing on the wall for me, if I'd had the wit to see it, <laughs> that the Brown Bag was starting to grow. Yes. And so I did work with them on a, on a number of 
small projects they would do yeah I kind of stopped doing animation at that stage so when any, I had any animation to do mm -hmm. on pilots or short commercials or whatever I would get them to do it okay. and um, but eventually then I did work on probably the last film that I made was The Boy Who Had No Story mm. which I did it completely with them okay. um, which is a very good experience I mean yeah. I really enjoyed doing that with them yeah it looks good I can only find sort of a, a clip um, of it online not the full like yeah. um, so what so what is basically is that based on a sort of an Irish myth or not so much yeah, my my wife's uncle had probably the best job in Ireland. He was a folklore commission employee stationed right. in, in Athlone okay. who was given a special allowance to buy whiskey for old guys <laughs> to tell them stories. So he would travel the oh Midlands gosh, of Ireland with baby powers in his pocket and um, just go to the houses of these old people and listen to their stories and collect them. So did, he, he, did he record them? Or oh, yeah, he recorded them. He yes. used but he would Originally, I think, in his youth, he would do them longhand. But later he was, he had a portable... Okay. So he's kind of like an Eddie Bingham type character. Sort of, like sort of yeah. yeah, I mean, yes, he, he really was. And he was um, a very entertaining man himself. But he, anyway, um, he gave me two of these stories. One was Sean Slamon's Dream. Um, and the other was called The Man Who Had No Story. Okay. And I'd been tinkering with those and other stories that he'd showed me over years and trying to find a way to, to use them. But at the time when... That project came along. It was part of one of the S4C's uh, animated stories of the world or something. Okay, so it was like a series of shorts. And Tanya Bonotti, who was working with uh, Screen Training Ireland at the time, Tanya observed that everybody else in all the other countries were getting twice as much money to make the thing as, as we oh, were being given. And we couldn't make a good film okay. with the money. So she managed to bully our badger, RTE, into putting <laughs> up an equivalent amount um, and so we ended up with a quite a decent budget for the film um, and but anyway in the process of trying to work out what would we do for that film I um, realised I could amalgamate the two stories it was kind of a fantasy journey of the Sean Slamman's dream with okay. the with the uh, the other story which was about I changed it to a boy yeah. who had no story and um, then the other really interesting thing with that was we I don't remember how we came to do it, but uh, we got um, the Cork musician. Um, okay. <laughs> what's his name? The singer. He's uh, oh god, uh, he'll come to me. Okay, yeah. But he he um, uh, agreed to do the music, mm -hmm. but he and he wrote and was going to record it with some other musicians. But he would only record the music in in. Uh, south he didn't want to do it in dublin right. so he ended up doing it in a, a studio in Kerry, which was a small space in an, an abandoned shoe factory right. that um, the one of the local uh, guys who ran a record shop was also right. very good sound and he built up i mean i remember saying pat, pat hayes's studio was a little bit uh, ropey in terms okay. of equipment but this studio was truly ropey <laughs> um but they had no system of running the film we had a pilot version of the film or a kind of a rough cut version okay. of the film at the time but he had the, the what should have been the room for the um, musicians mm -hmm. or the speakers and that had to become we sort of set up something in there a monitor that he could watch mm -hmm. through but then he couldn't put the musicians in there um, so the musicians stood around behind him at the control desk right. and, and played and <laughs> recorded there it was 
completely bizarre. Um, I remember one of them getting really cross with the other because he kept, when the fiddle player kept tapping his foot and that was annoying. So the guy just took his shoes off and went on doing it as before. But we had, we recorded that over two weekends, two long weekends down in, um, I think it was in Killarney. Uh, and uh, they did, you know, really great, ter terrific musicians. I can't even remember their names now. But they were first class um, traditional musicians who, uh, John Spillane, John, John, who John could, knew them all and, and just could really get them to do anything okay. and so they they played his music and um, made the soundtrack for it for the film there's one I, just going back on writing i think i read somewhere you were saying that dealing with that sort of folklore story is tricky because sometimes the characters aren't necessarily fully developed or they're kind of archetypes or whatever you want to call them so how did you with your experience because i think you've done a few things where you're kind of dealing with folks and myths and things like that do you have uh, any sort of yeah insight or tricks or something to like dealing with that how do you humanize these sort of mythological characters when in the writing <clears throat> yeah it's true i mean i think that that folk tales generally were um, about types not not about characters yeah. i mean it's always the the handsome prince and the beautiful princess yes. and so on and so they go through the do it by the numbers, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're going to make a film, yeah, you, you can't do that. Yes. You've got to. And I think, um, I mean, all of those lectures that I mentioned that I went to with Bobette Buster and mm -hmm. Bruce Block and all of those people, um, the one of the things they always went on about was character and character development. And yes. I, I, mean, I think I bought every book that was ever written about character <laughs> development. And, I mean, there are definite ways in which you can just analyze what the character does find out what might make him tick and then work on those elements mm -hmm. and develop uh, a background for the character to create um, yeah, so create flaws in the character and all the conventional things mm -hmm. um, which many people re resent or re reject even as being just too trite and too, too formulaic right. but it's really a form of kind of um historical psychology that you're getting into okay. you, you really are just um creating a person and there isn't yeah. any other way to do it yes. there's a set number of aspects to our characters that need to be looked at as yeah. a psychiatrist would or a psychologist yep. and so the writer does the same thing and just finds out what is it that makes this character tick and yeah. um one of the best um another failed project that i got involved with um with telly and it was really good to do was a uh, I'd done a, a treatment for a version of this story of Dermot and Grania, Thoriac Dermot and Grania. Okay. And the film board um, were very responsive to it and uh, we worked on it for about 18 months. Wow. So I had, it was into a third draft script so that, and it was, I think it was one of the best pieces of writing I ever did. Was that a feature? feature, feature, feature oh, it was feature, a big right? film. Okay, <laughs> yeah, okay. A very big film. And um, yeah, it's a huge story. To get it down to a manageable length um, was a big part of the problem but um, uh, I worked very well with Paul and uh, Siobhan at Teddy Gale mm -hmm. and we, we kept going back to the board and they were really uh, very enthusiastic about it until the management at the board changed and Jeremy I uh, can't remember the name of the man who came over from the UK right. to run the board and he did a complete 
survey of all the projects in hand and you decided overnight that was gone and it was just dismissed which uh, for me was a real shame because I really really was getting into it but I mean that's an aside I was what I was really going to say was to develop characters for Dermot and Grania mm. was required a lot of that process I just talked about mm. about looking because obviously they do an enormous number of things yes. mostly running and making love I mean it was about, <laughs> the whole story was about that yeah. but there's the tension between him between Dermot and the rest of the Fianna okay. which is really classic drama stuff mm. I mean it goes back all the way to Greek drama yeah. and I mean much of the Irish storytelling it seems to me was lifted sometimes wholesale out of the Greek think, stories so, yeah. um, so the grandeur that they sometimes appear to have is, is sort of borrowed grandeur yeah. which doesn't lessen the quality of the storytelling but it, um, but anyway it adds, to, it adds to the richness of it and mm. makes characters like Dermot and Grania and Fionn yeah. um, really interesting types to use for, for film storytelling and given the amount of historical storytelling that's now going on I mean yeah. it's, it's become a huge uh, thing I think it's amazing that somebody hasn't had a serious go at doing that story because it's, it's got everything I mean it's um, you know it's just a, it's a great story Absolutely. and how did you having you must have done other features though before that or was this your first like how, how was how did you find writing a, a long form as opposed to um, yeah I mean it's in a curious way because of the amount of um, reading and thinking and, and lecture attending that I had done uh-huh. I had taken to writing animated short animated scripts even my five-minute animated scripts had something of the structure of a, of a feature film. Right, I mean, okay. the, the same kind of um, climactic points. I'm obviously truncated yes. drastically. Yeah. But, but yeah, certainly in a half-hour script, and I've done a lot of half-hour scripts with a film, okay. um, The Troll Tales and, and those stories, and um, they, they would certainly have a kind of... Uh, the feature films I mean setting up the problem mm-hmm. you know an act I would definitely write to an act a three act structure for mm-hmm. those even if they had to be you know considerably condensed mm-hmm. so it wasn't a huge change to get to, to have the whole canvas okay, yeah. so of the big story sort of... there you were liberated actually yes, so were in many ways into doing it. it and I had worked on scripts uh, series scripts with or not sorry, with feature scripts with a film as well some of their early features. I didn't actually write them, but I worked with the writers, and um, we would have, uh, you know, been working again to that three-act structure, the kind of thing that uh, another name I can't remember. Uh, the the guy who wrote Story, Robert McKee. Robert McKee yeah. Robert McKee's. I mean, I firmly believe in a, a simplified version of Robert McKee's mm-hmm. story technique. Um, and so we've been applying that to these other scripts yeah. and even the Dibbo, the one I mentioned for the Koreans, yeah. which was um, I think it was a one hour long so it okay. had, that had the same kind of format yeah. Mm, excellent. Yeah. so I mean it was really a pleasure to get loose on uh, the Dermot and Grania story unhappily, it never got beyond the, the writing stage yeah. Yeah. but yeah you enjoyed that and you felt like that was sort yeah. of a, yeah. something where you, it's a shame that it was yeah, sort of been shelved but I mean, even you can even see that in the stuff that's been made, like say the um, Pope's visit is a nice. You know, sort of you talk about spikes and stuff like that. It's mm. a sort of fantastic sort of escalation, I think, which I sort of uh, 
because you need a strong point about that case. Yeah, I mean... Sort of setting up, I think animation is very good at that anyway. It is. I mean, I, I really, I mean, Gary directed that, Gary Blatchford, um, <clears throat> and um, I think the problem was that I had put far too much in it right. for the time. I mean, Gary had to just compress so much stuff that the pacing of it, it seemed to me, got completely out of hand. Okay. It, should, it needed to be maybe 10 minutes long right. yeah. rather than six or whatever the yeah. frameworks yes. uh, required. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there is, there is that kind of... Um, I, that's something I would like to have done a lot more of writing for slowly evolving anarchy. I mean, yeah. it's just something that, <laughs> that's good fun. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's excellent if you can do it. But um, yeah, I mean, it gets back to some of the old, uh, you know, not just the screwball comedies, but even the earliest are Keystone Cops and mm. Laurel and Hardy and those guys. I mean, the the way in which Buster Keaton and, and uh, Charlie Chaplin's when I was in a restaurant last year somewhere in Italy and um, at the back of the room there was a television on with a cleaned up version of Charlie Chaplin's film about the circus okay. running they were running a loop of it I mean it was only about the middle third of the film I don't know why it was there but it was the quality of the image was absolutely beautiful mm-hmm. and there was no sound obviously and I was supposed to be in conversation with people but yeah. I could not take my eyes off the screen it was just amazingly funny stuff that was going on the way in which the jokes were set up and the disasters resulted and then the sub-disasters that followed on from that it was just a masterpiece of, of filmmaking yeah. so then I did want to chat a little bit about Jimmy then we kind of touched on him before um, and obviously yes yeah, sadly passed away this year but if you have any particular like projects that you really enjoyed or sort of memories of him or that kind of sort of thing in particular that anything sort of leaps out at you or yeah I mean strangely I mean when he died it came as a terrible shock to me that he that he did die I mean uh, I knew he was you know he's getting on in years mm-hmm. but um and at the from the, the my immediate reaction was after that was that I I never knew how much I liked him until he was right, dead yeah. you know it was that yeah. type of terrible feeling that comes um, and so his friendship, I guess, was the thing that I remember yeah. most about him. I mean, he could be as cranky and as contrary as hell, <laughs> no question. Um, but nothing ever lasted in more than a, you know an hour or two. Yeah. And then, and he was to be tra- I mean, I travelled with him a lot. I mean, we mm-hmm. spent a lot of our time together in airports, right. sitting in the late at night and just waiting right. for a damn plane to arrive. And he was always a great companion. I mean, he'd never stop thinking and talking about stuff and stories that he had and mm. stories that we might make and um, uh, he was just great fun to be with I think the um, probably the, the work experience that I remember best with him was was the Inspector Mouse one okay. because um, it was based on a Ralph Steadman mm-hmm. story and he knew Ralph ah, and um, yeah. so we got to meet Ralph a couple of times who was another you know, extraordinary genius. Yeah. Um, and uh, then we had the the business of slowly losing control of the production and having it go into Paris. But there was always a consolation that that meant we got to go to Paris a lot, and we spent <laughs> we spent a good deal of time in Francis' studio in Paris. And Francis is another. I don't know if you've ever come across him. He's a much larger than life uh, Frenchman, and he's he's like Porthos in the Three Musketeers, right, okay. and. Uh, 
knows all the best restaurants and bars and <laughs> so he was another very good companion so Jimmy and I had some good times with him as well and um, you know and that was probably the biggest project that we put together um, that did actually get on the screens and, and um, was was successful yeah yeah because I guess one of the relatively recent thing was the um, that short film Sam Piper yeah did you so that was kind of was that Jimmy's story that you yeah. kind of did it tell you he's kind of scripted it? Yeah, I, I gave it the three-act structure. Oh, and okay. it had, yes. Um, but Jimmy had remembered that story. It was, it, it was just a set of things he'd seen from his days as a kid in, in California um, on the beach. And, um, I mean, I uh, the stories, I don't know if you've seen any of the stories that he's done about when it, the life in the camp, that the one that Shea Mary... Yeah, yeah I've seen that documentary, yeah. yes, but, yeah. The way that he used, he and his brother used to paint the birds with yes. Japanese hands. Yeah. Um, so always, obviously, birds flying in beaches was something that had fascinated yeah, him. So he wanted to turn that into a story. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, the, the amount of writing was minimal. It was just okay. a matter of structuring it in a way that gave it a bit of pacing and, yeah. and so on. And um, yeah, it was very nice to work on that because I think that was effectively the last film that he, he got made. I guess so, yeah. Yeah. Because he was... I was at the time. I mean, I like sort of met him, say hello a couple of times, and obviously I sort of really liked his work and I think Breathe and all that kind of stuff was. And I think you know his fingerprints are kind of all over the Irish animation industry, and that's why we ended up like dedicating Getty to him as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, he was. I was at yeah. I was at the talk and he was saying he well, he had written a feature apparently, which was a sort of a love story set against the backdrop of Hiroshima. Did you know anything about that one? No. Did you? Um, well, he talked. We we talked about that. Um, it sounded really good. It's yes, it did, but it it became hugely complicated. Uh -huh. Japanese, European. Yeah, because he was mixture. running a film in Japan. Yeah, and uh, I I he did ask me if I would do some kind of outline treatment or something of it, but it never got. I never wrote a word on yeah. on that. I never even fully understood what the story was right. which story either the story of the production or the story of the film <laughs> I didn't know which either of them were going to be so he did invest a lot of time and, and emotion in that and, mm. and, and uh, there was that time when the Japanese crew came over and they filmed him here right. and uh, we had a big final evening out in uh, in Finnegan's pub where the, the point the Japanese were making a documentary about Jimmy for some TV's show at home I think it was the notion of Japanese who live overseas and have um, sort of emerged or merged into communities that they were with so Jimmy certainly had merged into the Irish community Absolutely. and an evening in Finnegan's was kind of the proof positive of that so all his friends were obliged to turn up and uh, raise glasses to him which we did with gusto um, but they were apparently part of that effort that was going to this film was supposed to lead into this other big production because I think there was always a curious um, unease in Japan about when the wind blows that Jimmy yeah, had made. Yeah. They, it had never been shown at Hiroshima. I think it was shown in recent years. Right. But Jimmy was very disappointed, I think, in fairness to when the initial screens were taking place around the world and Hiroshima didn't take the yeah. film. Yeah. And uh, I don't think it was shown in Japan wow. for a very long time. Which really did surprise him because yeah. he he thought he was offering a very good comment on mm -hmm. you know what what has happened and 
what Japan had gone through at that yeah. time. Um, so I think this project was in a, some way an attempt to make up for that, okay. that they were trying to do it from a new angle and take a different and more positive story against the backdrop of the yeah. disaster in Hiroshima. Yeah. Um, but it was not to be, as yeah, they say. That's um, true. Yeah. Uh, so these days you're sort of painting then mostly. You're not involved with cartoon anymore? No, I finished with cartoon in Helsinki. I, I was John Rice took over from oh, yeah. me at cartoon and John and I went to Helsinki. They gave me a kind of a lap of honour. There were five of us going at the same time. Uh, right. Good colleagues from I've known for 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, so we had a kind of a sad but very jolly parting in Helsinki. And um, there was, I mean, I've known Mark, uh, who runs Cartoon now for, you know, all the way back to 89. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's kind of strange in some ways not to be working with them, not to be communicating with them. But John is very good at that sort of thing, so he will take over and I'm sure do a very good job. But it really, I had um, it had become almost dishonest for me to be on the board of Cartoon. I would always attend the Irish, the Animation Forum CEO meetings, so that I was roughly informed about what was going on, so I could pass on any inf relevant yes. information to the people in Brussels and when we'd meet. But uh, I was getting less and less associated with animation right. I wasn't doing any animation I got yeah. you know, more and more of the people involved were people I didn't know yeah. um, so it was time for me to leave um, and in the meantime I mean it's a bit like I think I said to you before and to the other students uh, I've always said it that if you're involved in animation you ought to have at least five projects going at the same time yeah. because you never know what's going to happen I mean a yeah. project you really invest a lot of emotion in and it can be shattering if that goes down and you've got nothing else to, to turn to. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I would always think that if the project goes down, you should have something and start on next Monday, you start on a new one and yeah. you forget the other thing. So, in a way, painting was my other project. Uh, okay. So, as soon as I stopped animation, I went directly into it. And I work exactly the same routine as I always did. I mean, I work from 9 in the morning till sometimes 10 at night. I mean, yeah. And... Um, because I haven't been painting for 30, 40 years, um, I have a hell of a lot of learning to do. I mean, <laughs> I've just got to teach myself to do it all over again. And wow. it's, it's a lifetime occupation, yeah. painting it. So as I don't have a very long life left, I have to work very hard to, <laughs> to fill in all the gaps. So I mean, I'm enjoying that hugely and um, enjoy the group that I exhibit with. It's a Excellent. good Excellent. group. So, um, and then do you want to just, yeah... Briefly plug the exhibition down in Wexford then. So when is that happening? Um, that's... Putting it in the spot now? Yes. yes. Um, I know that I have to su submit... The paintings have to be ready on the 5th of October. Okay. So the exhibition will be in the second half of October. It, mm -hmm. it coincides with the Opera Festival. Very good. And, and it's a very nice gallery. It's one of the nicest... What's it called? The Green Acres Gallery. Okay. It's the only really custom-built commercial gallery in the country, I think. Um, and they had the good sense to put it together. I mean, it's been there a long time, but they yeah. did a complete renovation of it in the, during the Celtic Tiger time and, okay, and yeah. managed to make a rather splendid place of it. And it's very well run, and um, they get a lot, of, a lot of visitors at certain times, particularly during the Opera Festival. So I always like to have work in there. Um, so I'm building up someday I'm going to take to a set of paintings based on opera 
Right. Um, but I, I would have to learn a lot more about opera <laughs> and even more about painting be- before I do that. Yeah. Fantastic. Cool. Well, yeah. I think that's a pretty good place to leave it. So yeah. Okay. Thanks very much. Appreciate it very much. Thanks. <laughs>